Hey everyone, I'm Lee Jin along with Nathan Bachez, and this is Means of Creation, a show where we deep dive into the passion economy and the future of work. This show is made by Every, a writer's collective focused on business. This week, we're really excited to be joined by Kyle Cheka, a writer who has been studying technology and culture on the internet and covers how algorithmic platforms shape our culture. Kyle is uniquely positioned to understand how the creator economy and the media landscape have changed over time, and this is because he's simultaneously involved in lots of different projects. He's a contributing writer at The New Yorker, um, which is a legacy media organization that we're all familiar with. He also writes his Substack newsletter called Kyle Chaka Industries, and he is embarking on a new newsletter called Dirt about entertainment entertainment and streaming culture. Um, interestingly enough, Dirt was crowdfunded by selling NFTs through Mirror, which is a crypto publishing platform. He's also written a book on minimalism and is working on his next one called Filter World on how algorithms mediate culture, which is set to be published in 2023. Kyle, it's so nice to have you here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to start off by talking about your recent New Yorker piece, what the creator economy promises and what it actually does. Um, which I think I actually feature in. Um, but in that piece, you mention that a lattice of new platforms and tools purport to empower online creators. In reality, it's turning digital content into gig work. It's a really provocative um, statement, and I found the entire piece to be really interesting. Um, I would love to chat with you more about this. So can you just elaborate on the parallels between gig work and the online creator economy. I mean, I think that that particular line is kind of polemic or provocative, uh, but I do think there's like similarities between the creator economy as we think of it online now and like the gig economy, which is what we were all talking about five years ago. And I think the biggest commonality there is that the people who are working on the platforms, like whether you're a driver or whether you're a podcaster or a Patreon writer, you're still working for the platform. You are uh, working within the boundaries of the platform, using the tools the platform gives you, and ultimately the platform makes all the rules uh, for how you make a living. And I think that that gets lost often in the messaging around the creator economy, which is all about empowering creators and giving people independence. Like you don't, necessarily have independence if you're still stuck within the bounds of the specific platform. Yeah, I, I think that's really accurate. And um, I recently wrote about this topic as well in a piece titled, The Creator Economy is in Crisis, Now It's Time to Fix It. Um, I think one of the biggest reasons why underlying the dynamic that you just mentioned there is the fact that these platforms control and own all of the data that users are contributing to it. They own the data about your social graph, your followers, um, they intermediate your relationship with those followers. And so creators aren't really able to be independent or to move elsewhere. Their, their work is very much um, constrained to the context of a particular platform. Yeah, I think that's really it. And it's like the, the monetization tools are all controlled by the platform. I'm curious, like, do you think that uh, things like are evolving in a relatively better direction or uh, like, because to me, it seems like it basically is like 
you know, Twitter has opened up this thing with review where you can put your newsletter right on your profile. But when people click the button to subscribe to you, like you get their email address and you can take it. Like if we're talking about kind of, you know, decentralized mechanisms for, for value and information to be exchanged, like email is kind of the original one, right? Or it's, it's just a protocol that once you have that token of like someone's email address, then you have a way of contacting them as long as they want to hear from you and they don't, you know, unsubscribe from you or block you or whatever. Um, it feels like things are relatively more moving that way, but in some ways it's also getting worse. I'm curious kind of like the direction things have headed over the past couple of years and the direction things seem to be headed. I'm curious what things you think might be getting better, what things might be getting worse. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Like there's Substack or something is much better for the user than Twitter. Like Twitter is would not let you monetize your content on Twitter. <laughs> they were not paying you to tweet or like giving you any share in their ad revenue or whatever. So the the move from like massive social media to more creator economy platforms that are more one-to-one and allow users to monetize their own content, I think that's a really good step in the direction of the user. Like the user has more power, owns more of their experience, um, but I think maybe the part where it's getting worse is more on the consumer side, almost. Like, we talk about email as mm. this really good tool that no one can mess with. But, I mean, c- viewers or consumers are still stuck within a lot of, like, super algorithmic feeds to consume most content. Like, you know, we're still fighting through Twitter to promote our Substacks or people are using TikTok to get an audience, but like the TikTok feed is super, super mercurial and you you never really know what you're going to get. So I think there's, there's more to be done in that direction of like new platforms that empower not just the creator, but the consumer to, you know, consume better. Mm. Yeah. The way that I oftentimes um, describe this is in, in terms of a funnel, um, for the creator economy, where at the very top of the funnel, like audience discovery and even finding people who love your content is like the first step of the process to engaging um, in the creator economy and to being a successful creator. And then you can form deeper direct relationships and then monetize those relationships. I think those latter two steps today, like creators have a broader range of tools that they can own and they can own that monetization relationship perhaps through their own Stripe account and they can own that audience engagement step by getting people to subscribe to email. But the discovery step, the very top of the funnel for how do I even build my audience and find people who love me, that's still mediated by a very small handful of centralized platforms is kind of what I'm hearing. And um, I, I think that's just like, that's just a truth. And the fact that it sits at the very first step of the funnel means that creators are still very much beholden to a very small number of algorithmic platforms um, for their livelihood and for their success. And yeah, I I would be curious to hear your thoughts on how we move forward from that and how the future, like what the future of discovery could look like that does actually empower creators and consumers. Yeah, discovery is still a huge problem. (laughs) And I feel like not enough people are are addressing it or talking about it. um, Because maybe, like, we already feel so limited to platforms like Spotify, or YouTube, or TikTok. Um, 
and it just feels like if you are an artist or creator, you you basically have to work through one of those. Otherwise, you're totally cut off from like the largest audiences. So I wonder what, like, what could that look like? I think there's a lot more that could be done with like marketing via your pre-existing user base, like making making your followers more advocates for your project and like maybe more advertising tools. Like I think when we talk about discovery, like we're often talking about marketing, like how do I reach bigger audiences? How do I find new viewers? And I think, I mean, newsletters, like subscription newsletters, I think are a really good tool and a really good way to go for a lot of creators. But I think we also need kind of more small scale advertising solutions as well, where it's like, right. You want to find audiences that are amenable to your content. What do you do? Well, maybe you buy a small ad in a newsletter that's similar to yours or something like that. But that's another whole algorithmic marketplace where most people are dealing with automated Facebook ads and Google ads and stuff. One, one thing that's kind of interesting about new forms of discovery is like they, I think of like the way that discovery happens is within some sort of bubble and platforms like, you know, YouTube and Twitter have the widest possible. It's like this world bubble. Like there is no outside almost beyond just like, you know, things that are against their term of service, which is like the very lowest common denominator type of content. But then there's much tighter discovery bubbles. Like, you know, I get in the mail every couple of weeks, an edition of the New Yorker and there's new writers in there all the time. And, and now you're in there and or the every newsletter bundle, right? Every our goal is to be something that's a little bit less of a singular package for a singular audience and a little bit more of a tighter trust bubble with a closer filter on quality, but where there's a lot of sort of like very liquid cross promotion going on, potentially both algorithmic and kind of editorial driven, but algorithmic within like a tight you know, curated bound. Um, and I think a lot more things will kind of pop up like this, where there's collectives, where it's a place you can go to, to sort of like tap into specific communities and also, um, you know, work with specific other like editors or, or other writers or what, you know, whatever type of, you know, medium you're working in, like if you're creating film or whatever else. Um, I'm curious for you how that's been. Cause like with the New Yorker, that that's one huge aspect study hall. Another one of your pro projects, I think probably writers kind of like discover each other there. Do you sort of feel like the kind of creation of these kinds of like smaller kind of collective things, like I guess a, how effective has that been? And then B like, how, how do you see it evolving over time? And, and especially cause you've seen it from like institutions that have been around for like a long time and stuff that's brand new and couldn't exist a couple years ago because it relies on some new, you know, social token technology or whatever. Yeah. I, was, I mean, I was just thinking about how that kind of co-op or like network system is another answer to like, how do you market or reach new audiences? Like you want to connect in a meaningful ways, way to creators or other talent that's similar to you and you want to cooperate with them and share tips and like share audiences and stuff. And I think, I mean, so study hall is a version of a cooperative like study hall is basically a digital community for freelance writers and media workers that P. Moskowitz and I started like five or six years ago. Um, and it just started out as like a listserv and newsletter for freelancers where people would share tips and ask questions and kind of trade information. Um, and it grew over time. We like charged subscriptions and, hired employees and stuff. And so now it's at about 6,000 members. Um, 
And I think it's a really good community space for like a, a most professional development space where you can learn how to do journalism, learn how to publish writing, learn how to work with editors. Um, but I think there's still, there's a layer missing on top of that where, you know, more successful or more experienced people also need that kind of professional development and skill sharing and like audience sharing. And I think that kind of professional collective or cooperative, there's still a lot of potential for that. But then like the, as you mentioned at the end, like the social token stuff, what strikes me about something like Board Ape Yacht Club or other like NFT avatar projects is that they are kind of pop-up communities and cooperatives and they're, they're, financial cooperatives almost because everyone's invested in the same commodity, which is the, the board ape NFTs. So there's this incentive to cooperate and right. cohere around a specific thing. And that seems super, super powerful to me. Can you say more about that? My, so I, I guess like having seen a ton of those um, avatar projects recently, I, I do agree that they are, resemble pop-up communities, but they're communities in a way that differ from traditional, the way that we traditionally talk about communities in in terms of these are people who are bonded through ownership of a similar asset versus having um, shared like a shared mission. Maybe the mission is just to increase the price of their avatars. Um, but like typically communities have some sort of other mission beyond financial um, and have some shared set of values. And I, I guess like the question that I raise when I look at these avatar projects is how sustainable can they be if people are only in those communities because they own this thing and they want the value of that thing to go up? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think they're totally Ponzi schemes, but it's not that far off. And I think it's like, you know, the watching the price go up is a very fun experience for those communities and it's exciting and it gives people a shared motivation um but i do think the more interesting communities around nfts are not just about prices going up and making money like i do think with board ape yacht club there's this uh momentum or motivation to be creative and like create more things in the board ape universe which to me is, mm-hmm. is super interesting it's like a streetwear brand or any kind of brands that anyone can participate in as long as you hold one of these apes, um, which now is completely exclusive and you can't do it unless you have a hundred thousand dollars to spare. Um, but that, that like shared world building I think is super interesting. And that's like an incentive that's not just about money. Um, and another project I really like called Blitmap um, seems to be a lot more about building an ecosystem around the set of NFTs that were created and developing more interactions with them and like different kinds of game playing. Um, so I think that community, it's a community of consumers still, I think, but there's, there's a shared participation and a shared investment in the project that doesn't happen in a subscription newsletter, for example. Right. I really like the comparison to streetwear because it is like the the key thing that drives streetwear is basically like a vibe and then some exclusivity around the vibe. And that it pretty much matches NFTs where like the JPEG is the vibe. And then the like location on the Ethereum blockchain is the exclusivity gate that's around the vibe. And um, 
like you can do things to extend it, but you have to be careful. You don't want to like overextend all the same dynamics kind of like make sense within a streetwear context. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. That was like a, you unlocked something for me with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's just cool. Like coolness is always built on exclusivity. Like not everyone can access it. And so when you right. drop the batch of 10,000 NFTs or whatever, there will only ever be 10,000 or less people who own that and can truly be like, I'm in this, you know, I'm like one of the core people in this or whatever, like I'm part of it and no one can take that away from them. What I am curious about is like, I don't know how big these things scale. Like, like once you have the 10,000 NFT holders, you know, then what, like no one can jump, like it becomes so exclusive, like Mm -hmm. CryptoPunks, for example, you literally spend a million dollars to like get in this club and that's literally only rich people. Um, So then it's like, I wonder how they expand outward. Exactly. And I think the question that gets raised there then is if you're trying to build this participatory um, co-owned media brand, like if you were thinking from first principles around how to design that and who the best people involved should be, would it actually correlate with the people who can afford a $1 million NFT. No, it would not. (laughs) Well, this is interesting because it's like they have their role, but they shouldn't be the core of the community probably. And it kind of brings us to dirt, I think, in a natural segue, which is like you you can strike one kind of deal with like basically collectors who can help fund the thing and then strike another kind of deal with readers. Um, And I'm curious to hear more about like how you kind of planned that and also just some of the like, I mean, there's very few people with kind of like one foot in the door at like in the world of of literature and cultural criticism and like, you know, institutions like the New Yorker and then another foot in the door being able to talk about like the Board Ape Yacht Club. Um, (laughs) So like there's not a lot of crossover there. And I'm curious how you when you were thinking about, you know, uh, getting interested in in this kind of stuff for the first time and, and experimenting with it, if you had any like doubts about like if david remnick could like look you in the eye anymore or like what you know all, all that kind of stuff like there's there's just very little crossover i think for kind of like cultural reasons like because again it's about what's cool right and like what's cool to people who are fans of like george saunders is different than what's fan of people who are fan what's cool to people who are fans of like vitalik buterin or whatever so i anyway i'm just very curious to hear the origin of it and yeah, how you yeah. design the incentives no it's it's a really fascinating dynamic i think i mean my my editor at the New Yorker, Rachel Ahrens, is like very, very patient with me and is like, well, I don't understand this, but <laughs> if you can explain it to me in two sentences and I get it, then I will let you write about it. Um, so that's like, you know, it took, I really <laughs> wanted to write a story about about DAOs, like decentralized autonomous organizations or CryptoPunks or something. And I was just juggling all of these ideas. And then suddenly Board Ape Yacht Club blew up and I was like, this is the story. Like, the story is that these guys made this like cool punky world and suddenly everyone who bought into it has a bunch of money because the price went up and is like united financially in this like semi DAO structure. Um, so that kind of like Board Ape Yacht Club as a profile subject allowed me to write about all of these different topics in a New Yorker way. Um, Cause like a profile is a very New Yorker format just here's some people who are doing some stuff. Right. Um, but like for my own interest, like I just think it's a super exciting 
space. And like, I come from a visual art background. Like I started in media as an art critic and NFTs are essentially visual art in like a very fast, very dynamic, very like wide way that even the art world doesn't really reach. Like I spent a lot of time 10 years ago writing about digital art that no one cared about. And now some of this digital art is like blowing up in the worlds of cryptocurrency and NFTs. And so it's almost very natural for me personally to write about this stuff. Um, and yeah, I can, I can talk about the dirt stuff yeah. as well. Um, so with dirt, it was like, I mean, I'd started the newsletter with Daisy Aliotto, another writer. And the idea was just kind of to talk about streaming TV. I mean, this is kind of still height of the pandemic. Like, you know, when's it going to lift? When's the vaccine coming? And all anyone talked about was like, what are you watching on Netflix? Or what TikTok did you see or whatever? So we thought that like a daily newsletter that addressed that stuff could be really fun. Um, and it was doing well, like it was popular. People were sharing the pieces that we published. Um, but there's this quandary of like, okay, to be sustainable, do you ask readers for subscriptions or do you do something else? Um, and I was excited about NFTs and thought that it would be a worthwhile experiment. And at the same time, Mirror was emerging slightly more publicly as a place that mingled NFTs and crypto and publishing in a way that no one else was doing really. So yeah, the, it kind of struck me that NFTs could work for this blog, for this newsletter. Um, and the incentives, I mean, to me, the question of creating incentives around NFTs is like the biggest problem. Like, how do you make people want them? How do you make them fun and interesting? How do you make it more than a one-time transaction? So as we think about NFTs for dirt, it's like, how do we create this world of visual art and like digital toys essentially that exist in the dirt universe? And like, how do we build stories around that and narratives and little games or prizes for people who have bought into the system? Um, so that's what we're trying to figure out now. Like we sold an initial batch of 131 NFTs and that raised about $30,000 or something. And so that was enough to fund two months of the newsletter, like running at full speed, kind of a full budget. Um, and so that went really well. Like the money was well spent, I think. People have been really happy. And so now the question is like, do you do more NFTs? Do you, you know, give free NFTs to the people who already hold your NFTs? Like the question is how to build out that world while still bringing more money into the system. Mm -hmm. And I think like other NFT projects have more money comes into Board Ape Yacht Club because the prices are going up. <laughs> like there's always, you always want to get on on this level because soon they'll be at this level. Um, but I don't think that's the solution for every single kind of project. Yeah, by the way, I am a holder of one of the original Dirt NFTs. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I thought it was really fascinating when you launched that crowdfund. Um, and in a way, I think of Dirt, and I think of all DAOs as basically like a crypto native cooperative, where the people who are in the community have some ownership interest in what you're actually building. 
Um, so in this case, the NFT holders, I think, are entitled to like some of the future revenues of the newsletter potentially, or some of the revenues coming in through through different products that you might launch in the future. Similarly, in DAOs, like all of the people who are members of the DAOs get to govern the treasury and get to impact like the decisions of the DAO and their focus. Um, I think the big question for for you that I see playing out in the broader landscape as well is it almost feels like we've conflated so many different things. We've conflated like people who are providing capital and wanting to support the thing with people who, yeah, who are your friends and just want to be supportive and part of this movement with people who are going to be actively contributing. Um, and like, oftentimes they are not one and the same. Like I, I bought the NFT. I wanted to support, I haven't done anything since then. Sadly, um, and I'm not entirely sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and like, I think the original um, announcement about dirt mentioned all of these things that like dirt holders could do, um, like they could influence what you publish and influence the topics you cover and all of these things. But like, I'm, I'm curious how that's played out, whether whether people are in, as engaged as you had hoped that they would be. Um, or like what what kind of behaviors you're seeing among the dirt holders? Yeah, I think it's a really that's a issue. <laughs> I think like I mean with dirt we kind of we raised the money that we raised in order to like hire writers and editors. And so I think the experiment that we did was we wanted like enough money to run a season of content and like do it really well. And I think that was somewhat separate in the end was separate from like the governance stuff that we also should be working on. Um, like editorial is always a weird product because it's not user generated. Like it's always top down. There's always an editor working with a writer to mm -hmm. make something that readers hopefully want to read. Um, so I think the next steps that we're doing now are like how to expand the utility of the NFTs and the tokens into more governance stuff and more influencing editorial stuff. Um, and I think that can happen like mirrors building tools for people to run votes like token based votes on that platform. Um, and we are also doing things like in a few weeks, we're distributing an NFT addition to all of the writers. So we're for free, like we're, we made this very cool NFT and we're going to send it to everyone who's written for the publication. And I think that gets more people involved in the NFT process. Um, and the NFT holders are also going to vote on the kind of end of season one NFT that we make. So, so far, I think the governance tools are harder and it's very hard to get people to engage because uh, often with crypto or NFTs, it's kind of like you buy it and then you let it sit in your wallet and you're like, okay, you know, maybe I'll look again at it in three months. Um, but I hope that in our case, like we start to have more engagement with the NFTs and the projects that we're doing. And we start to have more engagement with the editorial um, just as the newsletter keeps publishing. Um, but I do think like the tools for, right. to do this stuff are in a very early stage. Like I think the tool part, I didn't understand how difficult it would be to enact that governance stuff. Definitely. I'm curious, would you ever do something like, you know, have a token that sort of where you, where you structure kind of like 
you've got the okay so you got the proceeds from the token sales and then that's in some sort of dao treasury where then the people who have the token ultimately have a vote and it's like outside of centralized control in terms of where the money in the treasury goes so the dao could field proposals and have a voting mechanism of like oh like i'm interested in doing this piece you know for dirt like and if it gets enough votes then it gets to go through or something like that to me like we could every for us like i you know I'm sort of interested in that, but I'm also really scared because, like, I don't know. I like to have our little small team of editors that can kind of, like, guide it. And I hope people feel listened to. But, like, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe this is just, like, classic don't want to give up power, afraid to give up control kind of stuff. I, but, like, this is this is the central issue of, like, going fully kind of, like, decentralized DAO media future that people are kind of anticipating um i'm curious how you think of it personally for dirt and then also more generally for for what you see like happening in the world the problems they run into that kind of stuff yeah i totally see how a media dao could work like that like i think how i would design it is like you have the token launch or nft launch or whatever and so the full budget is like okay 70 percent is going to staff costs 30 percent is going to the editorial budget like the freelance budget and so the DAO could control how that 30% gets spent. And with Dirt, we've more been talking about maybe rather than specific stories, like coverage areas. Like, do you want to see more streaming? Do you want to see more books coverage? Like, where do you want us to, mm. to distribute the money topic-wise? Because um, I think, I mean, I think the story-by-story story thing could totally work. And it would often be good um, but th that's just a level of participation that most people don't want. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to help vote right. for every piece that goes in the New Yorker. Like, I just want to read the New Yorker. And so I think this is like a classic magazine problem of like, you want the editor to tell you what you want. You don't want to tell them exactly what you want. So I think it has to be a balance of like user generated yeah. or user influenced and just top down like we think this is cool and we think you'll like it so we're gonna do it it's so funny yeah. it's like we're rediscovering uh you know the republic or whatever <laughs> like direct democracy versus representative <laughs> democracy or whatever like in a in a sort of more capitalist context than a but it's all governance at the end of the day it's policy decisions right about what to do yeah to your question about having a DAO media company, like I think we can look at examples of successful co-ops, like worker-owned co-ops as how governance actually scales, which is that successful co-ops typically have management structures um, that resemble those of centralized corporations, i.e. day-to-day um, -day decisions are being made by a CEO and a leadership team. Um, and managers of every line of business, they aren't turned over to the entire workforce for every single minor decision. Um, and that's how you remain effective and how you scale as an organization. Um, the difference is that in a co-op, those managers are elected by the workers versus by, you know, placed in there by the shareholders. And so I think it wouldn't be all that different from how you're operating every today. Um, it could just be that governance elects you guys as like the editors of every and then you continue to write what you're writing. Though I think like to me, DAOs are a huge question. Like the, the DAOs that do exist now are just so arcane and so not 
what any normal human being wants to interact with that I really am curious when this stuff trickles down to more mainstream applications, what it will look like. Like I do not understand the like DeFi fund DAOs that are investing in other DAOs that are investing in whatever, like that essentially means nothing to me as a user of this stuff. Um, And I don't think most people can or need to participate in that. So like, what is the utility of DAOs to a normal user? Like, what do they actually want to help govern? (laughs) Do they want to help govern like what topics a magazine is covering or what artist gets commissioned to make a thing or, you know, what musicians are going to collaborate or something like that. Like, I think these kinds of cultural consumer things are more in line with like a mainstream application of DAOs than, you know, replicating VC structures. Yeah, totally. It is interesting to me how it does seem like a very large proportion, at least what I've seen of DAOs are basically like hedge funds kind of, but like with a sort of weird democratic structure. And I just wonder why people like, what's the appeal of, I can, I can get the appeal of like going to someone who I think is really smart and spends a lot of time studying something and being like, manage my money for this area of the world that you're smart about. I can also imagine the appeal of like having a bunch of opinions and wanting to vote on things, but like with my own dollars, you know, like buying individual assets or whatever this middle ground of like, I want to turn over my assets to a group, but I want to vote on what the group does too. Cause I have opinions. It's like either you sort of have opinions or you don't. And there's only so many things that you can have smart opinions about. And it, it does seem to me like I don't fully get the appeal of that. And it, I think it makes sense both in the media context of like, well, I don't know. I mean, like you're pitching me a story about, uh, you know, some topic that I'm interested in. But like, honestly, if I like a story or not, almost it has very little to do with the topic. There's lots of topics that I didn't know I cared about, but the story is just done so well that now I like it and I'm glad that I read it or watched it or listened to it or whatever. And, um, you know, same, same thing goes with any other kind of decision about like where resources should be allocated is it just takes a lot of information. Um, and kind of the point is to specialize that process of having some people who, do immerse themselves that information and make decisions and other people who don't have to um anyway yeah i don't it it's interesting i'm i I agree with you kyle that i'm like not sure i'm not sure where it goes from here because it does seem like it's kind of for crypto's sake right now of like it's cool and it's experimental and once it becomes less cool and less experimental i'm wondering what forms will sort of what the solidified forms will be. Well, I would push back there. Okay. So speaking as an investor, what you just described is like essentially how all partnerships are structured. Partnerships come together, different people have different expertises, but they pull together their capital and decide that, you know, collectively the wisdom of the entire group is going to exceed any of them investing their own capital on their own. And similarly, you can look at like what Gen Z and teens are doing today, which is that they're oftentimes investing as a group. They're pulling together their capital. They're deciding what to trade in their friend group and then executing those trades together. Like people are already engaging in investing like in a very communal fashion. It has just been hard to structure that legally, like to form a fund with a group of people takes, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and tons of paperwork. And so DAOs really lower the friction to be able to do that with a group of people. Though so not everyone should be an investor, in my opinion. Like, investing 
is an expertise. And I think the like mass democratization of like gambling essentially is like not a good thing for people or society personally. But where do you draw that line? Because in a sense, I think the crowdfund for dirt could be viewed as an investment. I don't think it was like an equity investment necessarily. I think it was an investment in the project. Like ideally it's an investment in governance or like shaping a thing that you want to exist. And I think like, I would like it if the NFTs themselves were worthwhile investments where the value appreciates. But I think the like, I don't, I would not want to like make something that was Board Ape Yacht Club that was like the expectation is you will make tons of money from this. Because for me, the people buying NFTs are buying the NFTs to fund the thing, to fund the publication, not Mm -hmm. just to like the opportunity to make money off of it. To me, it's like the NFT and the DAO can be a better form of subscription without having to be like hedge funds. Like, I just, I don't want everyone to feel like they have to participate in this economic, like, roulette wheel. <laughs> Especially not to a degree that's, like, uh, you know, irresponsible. I think it's fine if people want to put in, like, you know, 1% of something that, it, you know, it's like, a ti- it's like a tiny thing for them and they can afford to lose it. And they're doing it mostly because it's fun and whatever. And they want it, like, fun in the sense of, like, I'm just into the idea of the Board Ape Got Club and I'm into crypto or whatever. Um but yeah, when you get to the stories of people like consuming kind of like, uh, again, algorithmically filtered content to them, that's about how you're missing out on all this stuff. And, you know, you hear people recommend, oh, if you like come, if you like randomly like $100 million drops in your lap, what do you do? Like half Bitcoin, half Ethereum. Some people say it's like, oh my God, like, please, <laughs> God, no. Like, but people are doing that, you know, because, uh, you know, the algorithms I think select for people willing to tell stories that, provoke the most emotional response and stories like that provoke a lot more emotional response than like, do you know what? Like index funds for most of it. Yeah. I think like the NFTs are a really good model for this because they're not just financial products or there's, there's a quality to them that's like exists outside of financial products, which is like art and culture and like visual design and other things. So I think like, I mean, I like the idea of culture being more valuable and more people being able to like profit from their tastes, essentially. Um, but when it becomes more about the financial product than about the culture, then I think you run into problems. Like I, a big belief in my, of mine is that like culture shouldn't be financialized all the time. Like the the best art exists like not because of the market, but in spite of it almost. Yeah. It reminds me of my favorite quote on that line is, uh, I don't know this isn't actually a quote. I guess it's more like a phrase. Um, but like John Green uh, says that it's ultimately a gift. Like there's the thing you buy in order to allow the commercial activity of creating the thing to happen. But then the thing itself, the, the feeling of experiencing it is like that experience is the gift from the creator to the consumer. Um, and, and I love that too, because it kind of puts you in the mindset of like, what would be actually a gift for people? Is it something about making you look so smart or whatever? Or is it about just like helping someone through something or helping people understand something? You know, it's more about what's what's in it for the, you know, the enjoyer than the creator. Yeah, I mean, I think like with Dirt, the NFTs are fun and interesting, but in the end, like the product is the newsletter and like the writing that gets published in the newsletter is the core purpose of 
the publication. Like we don't make NFTs just to make NFTs, though they're cool. We do it so we can produce this magazine essentially um, and give people that experience on a daily or weekly basis of like, oh, someone cool is telling me about something cool and it makes you feel included. It makes you feel educated. It like gives you something that's not just about um, money monetarily profiting or something. Um, I think everyone should be an investor. I think we would we would be better off as a society if everyone were an investor. Like I think we got to the current spot we're in because not everyone is an investor and not everyone has received ownership proportional to the value that they're contributing. Well, I think there's like what we think of as investors now and then there's like people having equity in things. Like to me, a lot of investing now is like, okay, it's like startup style venture investing where I put in $1 and expect to get $100 in five years. Like that to me is, seems quite unsustainable and exploitative in a lot of ways. Whereas cooperative structures where everyone has equity in something and everyone is invested in something, like that's much more equitable mm -hmm. and it's much slower and more like yeah. scalable and democratic. Yeah. That's what I mean. I think everyone should be owners. Everyone should be invested in different projects. Yeah. Rather than just investing their time and their energy. Right. Totally. They should receive ownership in exchange for their time and their energy and perhaps their money. But it's really important to be careful with your money. And there's a lot of false narratives around where you could put your money mm -hmm. that are less about serving you, which, you know, and, and more about like allowing the next round of the of the kind of like you know, pyramid to continue to grow so that the people at the tip of the pyramid can continue to inflate their asset. There's this huge incentive created by the structure of a lot of investment vehicles. And this isn't unique to crypto. This is just a fact of what happens when you have people with a thing and they want to see the price go up is it creates an incentive to create a narrative that makes the price go up. And so people work really hard at that. And some people are pretty successful. And then to the degree they're successful, it can kind of keep going and propagate itself further and further. Um, but like, is that kind of, when you say Lee, like that you want everyone to be investors, do you want everyone to be taking money out of their bank account and putting it into speculative vehicles or you want people to have ownership over the things that are important to them in their lives and have some ability to influence it? More of the latter. Like, I think people should be compensated with ownership in, for the value that they're providing. That's what I mean by more people should be investors. Like people should receive proportional ownership to how much value they're contributing in terms of creative projects, in terms of participating in different platforms and different tech products. Um, like I think like investing um, means like having upside in different projects. And I think if that were distributed more equitably to all contributors, then like, that would be a fairer world in my mind. Right, right, totally. I can see this happening a little bit with NFTs and with these kind of avatar projects because like yeah. if you did, if you were interested early, like you made a lot of money. If you if you could identify this thing and get involved in it, yes. then you profited in a, in a great way. And like no one is mad at you really for, for getting in early and like cashing out and you've helped yourself, you've maybe helped other people and you've expanded the identity of this thing. Like 
should every piece of culture be like that? I don't think so. But I think like being rewarded for having good taste and making money from that is like a very good thing and a huge problem of the internet of the past 10 years where like we all shared and curated and posted Mm -hmm. to death, but got nothing out of it. I think this is a good transition to something else that I wanted to chat with you about, which is the impact of algorithms on culture. Um, So we just spoke about how algorithms impact us financially and they impact the livelihoods of creators. Um, In your upcoming book, Filter World, you also write about the cultural implications of algorithms. And you say that, quote, algorithmic platforms have flattened culture across both digital and physical spaces. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, the the book does not exist yet, to be clear. (laughs) Like, I I need to keep writing it. Um, But that is definitely the central argument that these algorithmic platforms that have emerged over the past 10 years and really grew to dominate what we think of as culture they exert pressure on both creators and consumers or artists and consumers. They pressure artists or designers or writers or whatever to mold their voice and their work to what suits the platform, to what suits the algorithmic feed of that platform. And they pressure consumers at the same time to kind of mold their tastes in the direction of what that platform provides and how it um, you know, guides them to content. Um, and I think from my experience and from like my writing, my argument is that a lot of these platforms really homogenize the culture that we consume. And rather than guiding lots of people toward many different niches, they're actually like corralling people into more centralized cultural forms mm-hmm. and making more things more generic. And I don't think that's like entirely true. It's not a blanket statement, but I think you can see that happening with like the kind of Spotify version of pop music or the Instagram aesthetic of like fancy minimalism or even the Twitter, like the way that Twitter's structure has driven this, you know, insanely provocative kind of poisonous discourse in journalism and criticism and literature. Yeah. Um, so the book is about how how we've experienced those things over the past 10 years and kind of the culture that comes out of this platform era. Yeah, and you also see it in the missing creator middle class where, you know, in in contrast to the theory, the Kevin Kelly theory about a thousand true fans being able to sustain tons of creators on the internet, because those niches haven't really been able to be discovered by audiences you instead have a very small number, a small subset of creators who are mega successful that the algorithms have exposed to huge audiences and then a really long tail of creators who are struggling to get by. Yeah, I think that's totally true. It's <laughs> the it's, it's again a question of discovery and distribution. Like, sure, you can probably find a thousand people to fund your work, but does it matter if it never reaches outside of those thousand people? Like what do you have access to when everything is an algorithmic feed? Like actually, if you don't fit the feed, you don't have access to much. Right. Totally. I, I definitely agree with this thesis that the algorithms kind of flatten culture rather than enabling a lot of different subcultures to exist. I think there are some subcultures, but there's this, I don't know. I have this theory about how it works and I'm curious if you think that this is right or if you have a different theory, but I just want to like pose this to you as a provocation. 
Um, I think like, you know, the way that culture works is like you start with what are people trying to do? And it's to like have friends and feel cool and find stuff that makes sense to them. And so a culture is like a shared of set, uh, a set of shared like reference points, basically a language, a way of speaking, a way of being a way of, uh, sort of like some values kind of, of like what's cool or not cool. And, uh, cultures are like have network effects cause they're ultimately just a way for people to connect with each other and understand each other. And so, uh, the people who are a part of the sort of like biggest cultures can possibly be rewarded by extremely broad exposure. And to me, the fascinating thing about this is when someone with like no Twitter followers ends up in one of these like, you know, Twitter, like, uh, like news, what are they called? The like trending the topic trending, things yeah. where they like take people. And it's like, because you speak this language, that's like, it feels extremely weird and extremely online and whatever, but it's actually extremely common. And it's just the way that Twitter the language of Twitter, basically, um, of like all Twitter, um, you know, it ends up being legible to like a huge audience of people. And that's a really rewarding event. The same thing happens on TikTok with a little bit of a different flavor. Um, but, but basically there's no incentive to speak a different language, to, to talk about a different set of touch points that like aren't kind of in the collective hive mind because the, the network of that is so much smaller. And so at the margin, people who are who, who are willing to be kind of interested in the main culture are going to like get sucked into the main culture. Cause there's so much more supply and demand basically being a part of that kind of like network. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's that, I think that's kind of how it works and it used to not work that way because, uh, your, your sort of surface area for distribution was so local. It was just people you work with people you might go to church with or whatever, like people, your neighbors. Um, and now it's like just this sort of, uh, it's people on anyone on Twitter, basically. <laughs> yeah, it, it, like when your horizon is like everyone on social media, like you end up speaking a much more generic language and with less like subtlety and specificity than you would if you're like talking to someone you know in your neighborhood or whatever. Like I think you're totally right that there becomes this language of Twitter or of TikTok or of any platform. And the better you speak that language, the more attention and audience you're going to get. And even if you think you don't want that audience, like a tweet going viral or a TikTok going viral is always going to, you know, tweak your incentive toward speaking that language even more. So I think like this, my editor at the Times Magazine, Willie Staley, just tweets these utterly meta Twitter jokes all the time. And he keeps making fun of the Twitter construct that's like, I, I can't stop thinking about XYZ. Like, and it's, it's such a Twitter construction and you see the most banal things people being like, I can't stop thinking about how Sherlock Holmes smokes a pipe or whatever. And it goes viral for whatever reason. And so I think it's like, <laughs> like that, that language is what I want to talk about. Like, what is that language and why is it so bad? <laughs> Cause it's like not interesting. It's only interesting yeah. insofar as how bad it is or how banal it is. And it's not literature, which is hopefully, you know, made against the grain of, of the usual language. It's meant to challenge you. Um, so I think like another aspect of this is that algorithmic feeds are always serving your preconceptions and serving your expectations. And they're never like totally challenging your, your sense of this space or your sense of familiarity. Yeah. 
Did you see the tweet? Uh, it was like Twitter users discover basic emotions or basic human concepts where it's like, uh, like, congratulations, you've discovered friendship when someone was like, ah, oh, that feeling when your IRL mutual is like vibing with each other or something like that. Yeah, it's like, exactly. yeah, that's being friends. It's great. You know? <laughs> I'm kind of of two minds about it because on the one hand, it's definitely like, uh, you know, rediscovering basic things in banal ways, but it is kind of like, isn't, isn't that sort of what art does is it takes something super basic, uh, that everyone experiences and showing it to you in a really weird, specific new way that they don't, you know, it's like show rather than tell or whatever. The point is don't use the cached label that people have in their head and doesn't make them feel anything. Show them it in this weird new way that cuts to the core of what the thing is actually all about rather than the empty symbol which kind of lost a lot of its juice. And so I'm kind of like, I don't know, it, it doesn't do it as much for me of like that feeling when you're vibing with your IRL mutuals, <laughs> but like for some people, maybe it is, that's what makes the concept of, of, you know, friendship have, uh, any emotional resonance, you know? Cause if you just say the word friendship, it's like, uh, yeah, I guess, I don't know what, you know, what about it? It does. It becomes its own language. That's maybe like the common language of our time. And I think like, like, is that tweet literature? Like, no, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't think it's good literature, but it's great Twitter speak, you know? Cause it's like, if it was said ironically, right. it would be really funny and knowing. And like, right. after that was posted, there was a million jokes made about it that like, you know, you know, eating food is like getting likes on your stomach or something stupid, but yeah, I wonder, <laughs> yeah. like, there, I think there's this crisis that mainstream culture is having that's like, how online should we be? And how much should we digest the language and aesthetics of the internet? Um, and I think that drama will only play out over the next 10 or 20 years. To play devil's advocate, to argue the position that a lot of platform builders that I've talked to share, um, social media platform builders, like the platforms, the algorithms are not doing anything in particular beyond just reflecting what the users want like they're not flattening culture in a way that like users aren't asking for and and like what they show us is a reflection of what people want and so it's it's people who are flattening culture it's people who are deciding that a small group of creators are actually better than all of the other creators out there um, and that just gets reinforced through the algorithm, perhaps, and, and gets amplified to more people. But like, ultimately, like people decide how to engage with the content that the algorithms are serving up, and they all gravitate towards one thing. When you remove, you know, localities and you remove like friction of serving the marginal <laughs> new viewer. Right, but the, what I do think, you think the argument that? the argument is that like removing friction and total scalability and like serving the user, whatever they want are all bad things for culture. Like, I think my argument is ultimately that like culture is not a scalable thing. And like what the most users decide is good is not necessarily good. Like I am elitist in that view. <laughs> like I don't, I don't want all music produced to just be what's like voted as the best thing on TikTok. And I think there are like mm. structures and incentives in the apps and in the interfaces that aren't just like what users want. So, you know, I, I just wrote about user interface stuff and it's like Instagram decides what kind of things it wants you to post. It's not just what you want to post. I think that's a really provocative note to end on, especially 
as a lens onto the previous thread that we were pulling on about participation and user-owned media companies um, and DAOs. And yeah, this this was super fascinating. Thank you so much, Kyle, for being here today. Um, I'm left with a lot more questions than answers, which is always the hallmark of a great conversation. So thanks so much again for coming onto our podcast. Yeah, thank you.